Chapter 19. The closer we came to our financial crisis, the more determined I became to find the money, because we were faced with another challenge on a different plane from any we had faced before. Late one afternoon, Maria telephoned me to say that she wanted to see me. Of course, Maria. You have our new address? I called Linda in and briefed her about Maria. This is a girl you should know, I said. She has tremendous potential, if her energies can ever be channeled in the right direction. She's brave, but it's gang bravery. When she became president of her gang, she had to stand with her back to the wall and let the kids hit her as hard as they could. She's a brilliant organizer, but she's thrown this away on the gang. She built her unit up until it had more than 300 girls in it. But I don't think she's coming about the gangs. I think she's coming because she's back on heroin. Then I briefed Linda on Maria's battle with the drug. I told her how she'd been a mainline addict when I first met her more than four years earlier. I told how she'd tried to throw the habit after she came forward at St. Nick's. How she'd married, how everything seemed to go smoothly for a while. Maria quit the gang, Johnny got a job, children began to come along. But one day, Maria and Johnny had a fight. The first thing Maria did was to connect with a seller and start drilling again. She'd gone off once more for a short while, but now I felt sure she was calling to say she was back on again. While Linda and I were talking, my secretary came in and told us that Maria was outside. What a tragic change had come over the girl since I last saw her. Linda and I both stood when Maria walked in. It was a strange reaction, a little like the feeling that you should stand in the presence of death. Maria's eyes were glassy, her nose ran, her complexion was mottled and pasty, her hair was matted and unkempt, her heels were down. She had no stockings on, and black hair stood out on her legs. But what struck me most strongly about Maria were her hands. Instead of hanging gracefully at her side, she held her hands as tight fists slightly raised. She kept clinching and unclinching her fists, as if ready to fight at a single provocation. Reverend Wilkerson, she said, I don't need to tell you. I need help. Come on in, Maria, I said. We pulled up a chair for her. Sit down, said Linda. Let me get you some tea. Poor Linda. She didn't know that a tea party was a heroin addict slang phrase for a drilling session. She must have been surprised at Maria's fierce reaction. No, she said. I, I don't want anything. She sat down. How are the children? Who should know? You've left Johnny? We fight. I looked at Linda. I've told Linda about you, Maria. Everything, both good and bad. After we've had a visit, I want you to get to know Linda better. She's working with a lot of girls around the city. I chose her because she's got a real way of understanding. You'll get along. Maria and Linda did have their talk. Later, Linda came into my office worried that she had not gotten through at all to the girl. It's the drugs, Dave, she said. What a devil-inspired poison. It's death on the installment plan. A few days later, matters got worse. Maria called Linda on the telephone. She was pleading for help. She was about to get into serious trouble, she said, and she didn't know how to stop herself. She had just taken her third shot of heroin, and she had drunk a full bottle of whiskey, and she and her old gang were heading off to fight a rival gang. We're going to kill a girl named Dixie, Maria said. You've got to come stop us. Linda and two of her partners raced uptown to 134th Street in Manhattan. They barged right into the headquarters of the girls' gang. They stayed for more than an hour, but before they left, the fight was called off. Dave, said Linda when she got back, this thing is desperate. We've simply got to do something for these girls. What is this thing called drug addiction? It took me four years to put into focus a picture of the complex threat that lies behind the single word, narcotics. But the picture that finally emerged is staggering. According to the latest official estimates, there are more than 30,000 addicts in New York City alone, and these statistics are based only on the records of those who are hospitalized, jailed, or committed to an institution. 
Thousands of others are breaking in on heroin by sniffing and skin popping. Thousands of men, women, and children condemned to what Linda vividly called death on the installment plan. There are enough teenagers among these addicts to people a small town. At least 4,000. Still more significant and more frightening is the fact that the percentage of teenage addicts is increasing. And this, of course, takes into account the fact that each year hundreds of addicts leave the ranks of teenagers by the simple process of growing up. To understand the threat and the challenge of dope addiction among our teenagers, it was necessary first for me to gain some understanding of the fantastic profits that are available to the trafficker in narcotics. By far the most common addicting drug in, you, in use in New York is heroin, a derivative of opium. A kilo of heroin, heroin can be purchased in Beirut, Lebanon for $3,000. Smuggled in, sold, resold, and cut at each step along the way, the kilo will sell on the streets of this city for $300,000. In time of scarce supply, the same $3,000 investment can bring a return of a million. Any trade that can convert $3,000 into a million tax-free dollars is going to flourish. Couple these profits with the fact that it is practically impossible to prevent smuggling and you have the makings of the narcotics trade in New York. It takes a crew of 12 agents the better part of a day to search a single ship for narcotics. There are 12,500 ships arriving from foreign ports each year in New York harbors and an additional 18,000 airplanes. To patrol these 30,000 carriers, the U.S. Treasury Department Bureau of Customs has given a pitiful 265 men. The result is that a man not known as a runner can walk into the city with virtually no risk, carrying a million dollars worth of heroin sewn in little silken bags attached to his garments. But how do the sellers find a market? Here is the story. Newspaper headlines recently screamed that dope peddlers were operating just outside the grounds of one of the city's schools. This was no news to school officials. They knew that most addicts got their first sample of narcotics in the immediate neighborhood of a school. Students at Junior High School 44 in Brooklyn were recently denied the privilege of leaving the school building during their lunch hour. Officials felt this captive lunch was necessary for the protection of the children. So prevalent was dope pushing in the immediate vicinity. Peddlers boldly waited just outside the schoolyard gate and on occasion actually came into the playground. These pushers offers, offer samples of their wares free of charge. One boy, Joseph, whom I got to know very, very well, told me how this goes. A pusher gets you into his car, Davy, and maybe he's got one or two kids from your class and they're smoking pot. Marijuana won't hurt you, they say. Then they tell you it isn't habit-forming, which it isn't, but marijuana leads to habit-forming drugs. The pusher tries to get you to take a smoke, and if you hesitate, the other boys start to laugh and call you chicken. And in the end, maybe you give in and take one of his cigarettes. That's how I got started. Joseph's story is typical. The child takes a puff in the back seat of some pusher's car. He learns that you don't inhale marijuana like you do tobacco. You sniff it until the fumes make you feel giddy. That first day when the boy returns to school, he is untroubled by his problems. Most narcotics addicts are lonesome, frustrated, angry, and usually come from a broken home. One sampling of the wonderful weed and the boy discovers what it would be like to be permanently happy. He forgets his drunken father and wandering mother. He is unruffled by the total lack of love in his life by the stifling poverty that forces him to sleep in the same bed as his two sisters and in the same room as his parents. He forgets all this. He is free, and that is no small thing. The next day, the obliging pusher is on hand to suggest another little sample of heaven. When the boy is ready, he is introduced to stronger stuff, heroin. Here, too, the pattern is followed, a free gift of the drug the first time, the first two times. The pusher is happy to make the investment because he knows that only 15 days of continuous heroin use produces addiction. Now comes the truly fiendish part of this story. Heroin costs from $3 to $15 a deck. A deck is a tiny cellophane container of the drug sufficient for a single intravenous shot. Davy, one 20-year-old girl told me during a heroin shortage, 
it costs me $60 a day to support my habit. I've heard of users hooked to the tune of $100 a day. More typical, I found, would be a $25 or $30 a day habit. Where is a teenager who is given $0.25 cents a day lunch money going to find $25? He might turn to crime. Teenage muggings, purse snatching, shoplifting, housebreaking, armed robbery, and auto thefts have become a major problem in New York, and the police say the reason is dope addiction. But the boy gets only one-third of the value of his theft when he sells it to a receiver of stolen goods. So to support a $25 a day habit, he must steal $75 worth of goods. The director of the Narcotics Bureau of New York, Inspector Edward Carey, estimates that drug addiction is responsible for $200 million a year in stolen goods in this city alone. Theft, though, is not really the answer for a boy who has become addicted. It takes too much ingenuity and too much effort, and there is always the risk involved. A much simpler solution is to become a seller. On a dark street corner one night, a teenage boy told me how this happened to him. Carl is 18. He had been mainlining for three years. When he first realized that his habit was going to cost him $15 a day, then $20 a day, then $25, he went to his supplier and offered to help him sell. Oh no, boy, if you want to sell, you have to find your own customers. And in this sentence lies the reason for the steady spread of addiction. Carl, to pay for his own drugs, pressed narcotics on younger boys. He used the same technique that had been used on him. He passed off the habit as being worth a couple bucks it costs. He chose the more sensitive, hurt, withdrawn boys to pressure. He called them chicken when they wouldn't smoke marijuana, and in the end, Carl succeeded in building up a business for himself. Into the chain of ever-widening addiction, not one but ten new boys were added. One of the questions I asked these boys was, why don't you just stop? Suppose that a boy did choose to stop. This is what he faces. About two hours after the effect of the final shot wears off, the boy begins withdrawal symptoms. First, there's a deep craving that pulls at his body from every pore. Then the boy begins to sweat. He sweats with chills. While his body temperature rises higher and higher, he begins to vomit. He retches for hours on end. His nerves twang with excruciating pain from foot to hair roots. He suffers hallucinations and nightmares more horrible than the worst ever imagined by an alcoholic. This lasts for three full days, and unless he is helped, he just won't make it. Even with help, the chances are nine to one that he will never be free from this habit. Each year, 3,500 addicts are admitted to the United States Public Health Service Hospital in Lexington. More than 600 doctors and staff members try to help the addict free himself from the habit. Yet a 20-year study carried out between 1935 and 1955 showed that 64% of the addicts returned. Many more went back on drugs without returning to the hospital. Between 85 and 90 percent of the addicts, says Dr. Murray Diamond, chief medical officer at the hospital, eventually returned to their habit. Once you're hooked, man, a boy who had been to Lexington told me, you're hooked for good. I got me a fix within five minutes after getting out of that place. What happens to the nine out of ten addicts who cannot throw their habit? A physical deterioration takes place that is painful and repelling. Carl, even while he was pushing drugs upon younger boys, had in his possession an official bulletin from the New York Police Department describing the effects on the body of continued use of drugs. To be a confirmed drug addict is to be one of the walking dead. There are many symptoms to indicate a confirmed addict. One of them may be present. The teeth have rotted out. The appetite is lost and the stomach and intestines don't function properly. The gallbladder becomes inflamed. Eyes and skin turn a bilious yellow. In some cases, the membranes of the nose turn a flaming red. The partition separating the nostrils is eaten away. Breathing is difficult. Oxygen in the blood decreases. Bronchitis and tuberculosis develop. Good traits of character disappear and bad ones emerge. Sex organs become affected. Veins collapse and livid purplish scars remain. Boils and abscesses plague the skin. Gnawing pain racks the body. Nerves snap. Vicious twitching develops. Imaginary and fantastic fears blight the mind. And sometimes complete insanity results. 
Oftentimes, too, death comes much too early in life. Compared with normal persons, according to one authority quoted in a U.S. Treasury Department pamphlet, drug addicts die of tuberculosis at a rate of 4 to 1, pneumonia 2 to 1, premature old age 5 to 1, bronchitis 4 to 1, brain hemorrhage 3 to 1, and more than 2 to 1 of a wide variety of other diseases, such as the torment of being a drug addict. Such is the plague of being one of the walking dead. Carl knew what was ahead for him. It didn't slow him down at all, nor did it slow Shorty down. Shorty came to me looking for help, and in the process he taught me a tragic lesson. Shorty was 19 years of age and addicted to heroin. He had been on drugs since he was 15 years old. Tammy was Shorty's girlfriend, a very beautiful girl of 17. Her parents were known in New York, business and social circles, and attended a fashionable church. Shorty asked me to get Tammy off the stuff, and I agreed to see the girl. When Shorty and I tapped on the door of a dark, rat-infested backstreet tenement basement room in Brooklyn, there was a quick shuffling inside. We waited while an impatient Shorty mumbled under his breath. When the door opened, there stood Tammy, open-mouthed and surprised at our sudden visit. There are two other young men in the dimly lit room. They had rolled up the sleeves on their left arms. On the table before them lay the works, consisting of a needle, bottle cap, cooker, a glass of water, and a small cellophane bag containing a white substance. H, or horse, or heroin. Who's he? said Tammy, jerking her head toward me. He's okay, said Shorty. He's a preacher. I asked him to come here. Well, he's going to have to wait if he wants to talk to me. Tammy turned her back on us and went ahead with the heating process we had interrupted. Shorty must have read my mind because he turned to me and whispered very softly, Don't try to stop them, Preach. If you mess up the fix, those boys will kill you. I mean that. If you go out and try to get the cops, we'll be gone by the time you get back. Stick around. It's good for your education. So I stuck around and got my education and what it's like to be a teenager on dope. While the preparation of the injection was going on, Shorty told me Tammy's story. She too had been on heroin since she was 15. Her parents didn't know the double life she led, including the night she spent with men. All they knew was that Tammy had left home and was living in the village. They saw her on weekends, and although they were a little shocked at Tammy's bohemian life, still all girls had to go through the rebel stage. They left her alone. Tammy's rebel stage consisted of a growing addiction for heroin and a deepening involvement in sex for pay. She has to do it to support her habits, said Shorty. She's a call girl. She has a regular list of clients, most of them Madison Avenue businessmen with wives up in Westchester. And then Shorty lowered his voice. But the thing that gets me is how she's taken up with these queers. She's becoming more and more lesbian. It's where she gets her kicks. I didn't have the heart to ask Shorty where he fit into this picture. He was less than five feet tall and dark. Tammy was slender, tall, and blonde. I just let the subject alone. Shorty was getting impatient. I shall never be the same as a result of the scene I witnessed in the next few moments. The preparation of the fix had taken some time. By now, each teenager, including Shorty, was pushing and struggling to shoot up first. The sickest was allowed to drill before the others, and Shorty suddenly went into a seizure of shaking and retching and moaning, I suppose so that he could be first. With starving eyes, the four youngsters watched one of the boys pour heroin from the little cellophane bag into the cap cooker. Not one grain was wasted. Hurry up! They all screamed low into his ear. With shaking hands, the boy lit two matches under the cooker and boiled the contents. The other addict took off his belt and applied a tourniquet to Shorty's arm. The other addicts were now getting very agitated. They stood by gritting their teeth and clenching their fists to keep from grabbing the loaded needle from Shorty's hand. Tears were streaming down their cheeks. They were cursing under their breath and biting their lips. And then one by one, there was that final puncture that was so exhilarating needle against extended vein. I've never felt so close to hell. Kids drifted off into a kind of euphoria. For a long, long time, I listened to their foolish gossip and rambling. Shorty told me of a dream where he stood before mountains of white H loaded needles and an eternal fire to boil the stuff with. That seemed to him like pure heaven, a place where he could shoot mountains of heroin into his veins.
What about it, Preach? You going to get Tammy off the stuff? Shorty asked, suddenly remembering why he had asked me in. I told him I would certainly try, and I did try to talk with Tammy then and there, but she looked at me with glassy eyes and told me to go to hell. What could I offer that she didn't have right now, she said. She was in heaven. I just didn't know what heaven was like. She could handle herself without any help from a screwball preacher. Shorty, too, thought better of having invited me in now that he had his fix. When I told him that I had no magic cure, that all I could offer was help while he went cold turkey, he looked at me and scratched his head and said, Well, what did you come here for, then? So I failed. I failed as I had with Maria. I left the apartment. When I went back to try to help them again, Tammy and Shorty had disappeared. All their gear was gone. Nobody knew where they were. Nor did anybody seem to care.